Welcome to Talent Talks from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Tim Perry. He graduated in 1986 from our Prescott campus with a degree in professional aeronautics. He served in the U.S. Air Force during the first Gulf War and left military service in 1991. After decades in the private sector, Tim got a master's in leadership and counseling from Rockbridge Seminary and established two organizations, Nationwide Chaplain Services and 1041 Incorporated, which provide counseling and psychiatric services uh, geared toward first responders. Usually we schedule recording time with the students at Wicked Studio, but right now we're doing our best to physically distance. So we're using the power of the internet to connect with Tim at his home in Elgin, Illinois. Tim, thanks very much for agreeing to be our test subject as we try out this whole remote recording thing. Excited to be here with you all. Excellent. Um, so you attended Embry-Riddle at Prescott in its early years, which is, you know, it's not, wasn't nearly as developed uh, as it is now. Uh, what was it that attracted you to the school at that time? Well, I was in the Air Force sitting in a fine little town called Blyville, Arkansas, which if you look in the dictionary under flat and very boring, that would be Blyville, Arkansas. And so uh, as an enlisted per air traffic controller, I wanted to uh, complete my education. And then they came up with a scholarship program called uh, Bootstrap. And I put in for Embry-Riddle Prescott campus and I got my, my first wish. And uh, I was on a bus heading towards Prescott, Arizona in January. And uh, as I drove up through the mountains, I had wondered what decision I had made. <laughs> but when I got there, all the questions were really subsiding as we met great friends, great um, instructors. And I fell in love with Prescott, Arizona. That's great. So have you been back to the campus since? Yes, I probably returned about three times a year and have been since I graduated. Uh, what makes it easier is my daughter has her family there as well now. So twice as much motivation to get there. Yeah, good reason to go back for sure. Um, what do you think of uh, the changes on campus since uh, since and how it looks now? You know, I I am so amazed at all the work that uh, folks did at, at, at Embry-Riddle from all different facets of whether you're raising funds or having the vision to know what our university needed and what we needed to focus on, bringing in all the new professors and instructors. Uh, I am so elated. Every time I go onto the campus, I, I just generate an excitement about it. So I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm probably the uh, biggest hidden cheerleader for the Prescott campus. That's great. Uh, so you, after graduation, you joined the Air Force or did, you said that you were in air traffic control before. So was that air traffic control with the Air Force or was that private? So yeah, air traffic control was Air Force. And then uh, I went on to a bootstrap program, which is scholarship mm -hmm. to Ember Riddle uh, using the ROTC program. And then okay. as I graduated, I went back in as an officer um, so I was commissioned in Prescott. And then um, my first uh, assignment was out in um, Sacramento and then Omaha, Nebraska. So I read that you flew the uh, EC-135 uh, as part of Operation Looking Glass. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but for our listeners trying to picture one of these airplanes, it's is it fair to compare it to the KC-135 Stratotanker? Which is, it is. You know, okay. It is. The 135 has uh, uh, three different missions. One's an EC, our electronic. One's a KC, which is an in-flight refueler. And the other is Recon as the RC-135. So great mission in that aircraft and played a major part of strategic air command. So I'm not committing like some crazy Air Force faux pas by comparing the two there. <laughs> <laughs> I got you covered. All right. All right. Good, good. Um, so uh Operation Looking Glass being a Cold War program uh, with the goal of always having an airborne command and control center for nuclear armaments in case the ground-based control was destroyed. Um, so what was uh, one of these fleet was 
one of these planes in the fleet was always in the air for something like 29 years. What was it like to be involved in that sort of system? You know, it was it was an amazing operation. We probably flew more than most aircraft did. Um, for fighters, you might see 300 hours a year. We saw over uh, a couple thousand hours a year. It was an eight-hour mission, so when one took off, there was always one in the air. Uh, it was a satellite-fed aircraft, and in case the world went to war and something got knocked out, we would uh, control operations uh, from the air. So we had a, a general, a battle staff of about 30 to 40 people in the back of the aircraft listening to planes launching missiles and so forth. And then we always had a very important position with us. It was the... Um, flight attendant for the general. And so whatever the general got fed, we got fed. So we had three squares a day. It was a magnificent mission. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good gig. Uh, so you uh, you retired from the Air Force in 91. Why did, why did you decide to do that? You know, the family uh, had decided at the time we they wanted to go into the civilian world. So after a lot of uh, thought and discussion, uh, I went to work as an airport uh, manager uh, near the Chicago area and then um, moved my way into corporate America for about 24 years. Um, and I focused mostly <clears throat> on leadership and development. So in... Uh, around 92, 93, you went on a discipleship trail. Can you tell me what a discipleship trail is? I wanted to figure out what, uh, what one's faith is and how you use it in your real world, in your real life. And so um, about the age of 50, I entered seminary and received a, a couple interesting uh, degrees that would help me move into the next uh, phase of my life. So long story short is this is a, a an amazing path that helps you use your faith into your, your professional world, your personal life, and everything in between. And so um, by getting a a seminary degree in leadership, a counseling degree, um, I believe that I was um, retrofitting myself for the new world. Tell me what you mean by that. In the aviation world, which I came from uh, through air cargo or uh, the Air Force, um, your world is pretty much about aviation. Moving into the civilian platform, uh, it's more about um, uh, pure leadership and uh, communication of, with people. But now, when I decided at the age of 50, which most people don't do, to go back to college, I was asking myself, how will I serve this world and make an impact in the remaining decades uh, that I have? And so I felt it was necessary that I had to go through these learning programs, these life experiences, these missions trips to really understand um, how best to serve this world. When you were working for Motorola, uh, meeting with police officers around the country about their software needs, this is when you were still in the private sector. Um, one of these trips, you met someone that made you want to, you know, take this, you know, take this alternate path. Can mm. you tell me about what that experience was? That's uh, such a good story. You know, I was with the uh, group in Motorola that would go around the country and find out what they needed in their fire trucks and their um police cruisers. And, and I, I was just sent to make a list of things. And one day I was with an officer that uh, just started weeping. He had a bad situation happen a couple days before. And I had no credentials to help him at that moment to make him feel better. Sometimes in your biggest disaster or um, your most hurtful moment, that's when um, the vision of your life may come 
um, to fruition. And so from that moment, I wanted to make sure that um, that I had the credentials to help people in this situation. How to help police and firemen uh, get through uh, the difficulties of life was constantly on my mind. And so that's why I decided to go back and get my credentials and be of help. But, but I knew my choice was to go work for another company or start my own company. And so I volunteered for five years in a, in a chaplain role, running alongside police and fire to gather as much data as possible. And at the fifth year mark, uh, just decided it's time. And so I left the corporate world and uh, began the two uh, operations. And I think over the past five years, we've created an amazing model, not only for business, but also for caring for people in emergency response land. So, yeah, tell, tell me a bit uh, uh, about Nationwide Chaplain Services and, and 1041. These are two organizations that you do, but they do slightly different things. So Nationwide Chaplains um, has the ability to bring certified uh, pastors, certified in chaplaincy and emergency response chaplaincy, because it's very different than running a church. And mm-hmm. So we would be on scenes of some pretty terrible accidents, and we'd have to counsel uh, police and firemen right there on the spot so we can get them to a better space and into more counsel. A lot of our chaplains are board-certified psychiatrists and psychologists. But even knowing uh, that, I was only serving 20% of any given Uh, police or fire station uh, as far as the workforce goes. And so I needed to create another uh, opportunity to take care of the rest of the workforce. So we created a second organization called 1041 Incorporated. And the 1041 is a public safety code. When the police officer gets on the beat, they'll call out onto the radio, uh, Squad 22, I'm 1041, which means I'm in service. And when they leave for the day, they'll call out 1042 which means I'm end of service. And so I believe that it was um, my role to keep these men and women in service, not just to their professional life, but for their personal life, for their families, which play a major part of their lives. So between Nationwide Chaplains and 1041, we provide chaplains, counselors, and specialty training, such as resilience, uh, to the officers across the country. And soon we added dispatchers and coroners because they deal with crisis in a completely different way. So between those four entities, police, fire, dispatchers, and coroners, we're able to serve a very large group across the country. And we're able to meet them in in different situations. We met people in their garage when they wanted to end their life. We've met people on the scene before a five-car fatal accident with um, body parts and and, um, people in very bad situations, fires. Um, The list goes on and on, but we have to be prepared to counsel uh, people both on the scene and after uh, so that they can find uh, another day in their job. And soon I I just uh, uh, was talking to Bill Thompson. Um, I said, Bill, there's got to be a way for me to take care of my alma mater uh, with what we're doing now, because the model is is just um, doing so much good on the earth. And so we talked about helping Ember-Riddle alumni out by providing counsel through this COVID situation. So whether somebody owns a business, works at a business, or uh, is in school, uh, we want to 
reach our hands out to the alumni just to say, our counseling services will help you. And we won't offer a, uh, a price or a cost or a fee to do that. I imagine at this point, you're, you're probably doing some of this uh, remotely with, with some of your your clients. You're absolutely right. Since COVID started, um, we had about 60 counselors that were using video counsel. Now, mm-hmm. most first responders <clears throat> would never touch a video counsel. Uh, for them, it would be uh, too scary, too intrusive. Um, but when COVID hit, it was the only way to get in front of people. And so 50 counselors counseling at least 10 people a week over 16, 17 weeks. We've been in contact with over 7,500 people in the morning, noon and night. It doesn't matter when or where. It's just important that it happens. And most recently, we've been talking to a lot of um, spouses and also been holding groups for teens so that the parents could help the kids better understand how to deal with the stress and fear of the COVID and the future and the the unknown. Uh, Because some of this is really taking its toll, even to the point of people taking their lives. So we feel this is critical and essential. Yeah, it's it's really, um, I mean, any sort of psychiatric work is really important work. I mean, I'm, uh, personally, it's, it's, um, yeah, the entire change to our lifestyle, everything that we do, and then the yeah. constant worry of getting infected. These are things that, you know, weigh on a person. Um, and so it's, you know, as much as I might feel and look professional, there's still like that, that there's still that anxiety underneath. Yeah. Imagine um, going to somebody's house, for example, just mm-hmm. yesterday, we had a, a, a suicide of a, a a younger person and going to that house, you don't know if it's a COVID house. Um, you don't mm. know what situation you're going to. Is it volatile? Is it, um, is it a mess? Uh, we sometimes, um, death scenes can be pretty ugly to the eyes, but, um, imagine doing this, um, morning, noon, and night, <clears throat> never knowing what you're stepping into, but those, those brave men and women who wear the badge, um, they do a, an incredible amount of work. And so I, I believe we can pay them back. Do you have, uh, like a personal connection to first responders, police departments somewhere in your life? You've, you've, how did you become connected with this uh, yeah, no family members, no experience ever. It was just those Motorola days where I was yeah. um, traipsing the earth in different uh, police departments across the country. And then meeting that one officer that was so um, distraught that he couldn't contain his emotions anymore. And in front of a stranger, mm-hmm. yeah. um, just sought to put it out there. And really, that's the thing that went through my mind for months until we decided, I think we know what we need to do. Um, but there was really no um, experience before. But you know, now we've amassed over ten years of counseling uh, yeah. these good folks. Um, and we've become a piece of the furniture sometimes, or uh, people will call us and, and ask us to meet us at the uh, at a gas station, or a, I hate to use the word uh, donut shop, but I'll just say restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> we meet them on the scene after the scene at homes, hospitals. Um, they're not shy about asking for the help once. They they know you and trust you. It's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, there, there was a time and maybe it's still the case that, um, officers, if they were diagnosed with, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and other similar conditions, they might lose their badge. And so they wouldn't come out, you know, they wouldn't 
seek help for these conditions. Yes. Is that is that still a concern with, with it is a concern. It's the one thing that helps create the stigma and that is um, what will you think if you know uh, my psychological um, challenge? And so we've tried to reduce that stigma by being so easy to get a hold of. We're inside the police stations, inside the firehouse. If, if we're around and it's easy to call us and to talk to us or be with us, that will help. But by providing spiritual counsel, board certified psychiatrists, psychologists, even MDs, in neuroscience, we use the latest science to read the brain. Mm-hmm. We use our MDs to give us CAT scans so we can read the entire body. We can do all these things in the, in the firehouses and police stations or even in the, the cruisers. That's how we're going to reduce the stigma of this. Um, they just don't want anybody to know. And most states are writing some laws now that say if a police officer needs some uh, bed rest in the hospital to get good psychology rest and, and medicine when needed, uh, they will not be um, threatened to remove their badge or their gun. So um, some good programs are starting uh, around here in the Chicago area. We have a hospital that has cleared the entire floor for police and fire, and they can get all the rest and doctors that they need. And nobody can remove their badge or gun. Now, there's fail safes involved with this. There's more testing and so forth that needed to, you know, to remove officers and firefighters if we need to. But mm-hmm. the idea is not to not to fire them, but to um, build them stronger. Yeah, yeah. There needs to be some opportunity to heal, right? Yes. So it, you mentioned hospitals. Um, was that originally part of the plan? Because you know, I don't know that people in, until COVID like. We would have expected that nurses and doctors would necessarily be considered first responders or, you know, subject to a whole lot of post-traumatic stress in the same in the same way that uh, yeah. police and firefighters obviously do. You know, um, hospitals weren't part of the original plan, but um, a few hospitals had asked for our services. And so we created um, some agreements and and put some teams together for them. Hospitals usually have chaplains and they have their resources of um, psychologists. Um, but for for some reasons, people don't want to see the resident expert in the hospital. They want to see somebody that they won't run into. And so we provide that. Um, emergency room nurses in a very busy hospital in a very big town um, can be besieged with amazing levels of stress. And we mm-hmm. want to be able to help them clear the stress or start to manage it um, from the moment it happens or the night they leave and then continue it on into council. So how do you, because you've gone on these calls, you've talked to people at, you know, 2 a.m. car accidents and, you know, you've been there and uh, dealt with, you know, seen the same sorts of things. How do you deal with it yourself? So I require that all our counselors and chaplains have uh, their own counselor, and it cannot be um, their family members like their spouse. It cannot be their boss if they're uh, in a church or something. They have to have a separate counselor, and the agreement is that they have to check in with them uh, once a quarter, or if I see something's wrong, I can take them out of service and put them in, in the doctor's office. So what used to be um, uh, 10, 20, maybe even 30 years ago, everybody was left to their own vices. And and sometimes pastors or chaplains can be just as tough as cops and firefighters with getting help. And they're, again, they're afraid to be seen as uh, anything that was weak or, or hurting. But that's all changed now. 
And so it's if, if you set the expectation for good health, whether it be mental health or physical health, and that's your edict for the organization, people follow it. In fact, um, we had an active shooter situation last year, and it was pretty gruesome. There were four bodies on the on the top floor um, that were shot by an active shooter, and then um, there were there was a body down in the the dock area. Some police officers were shot, and then the the shooter actually put the gun to himself. So it was a very bloody scene. And so we got there about two in the afternoon. We got to the bodies about three a.m. and then finally got them back to the morgue about. Uh, six, seven in the morning. Uh, we were all very exhausted, and we didn't expect all the family members of those that were killed that day to be there waiting for counsel. So we called in a second wave of counselors, and by now it's about one o'clock, and then we got a knock on the door, and it was the shooter's mother. And uh, she said, I'm the shooter's mother, and everybody hates me. Help me understand how I can make people feel better. So that was a very long day. And by the time that day was over, I myself felt um, overstressed, lack of sleep, and uh, a little irritable. And one of my colleagues came up to me and said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm observing something. Um, Maybe you're a little bit tinged right now. And I said, okay, well, let's go look at it looked at. So we called our psychologist and our neurobioscientist in. They did a brain scan and they saw that I was extremely um, uh, filled with anxiety and uh, exhaustion. And, and they saw it in a matter of a second. They put some equipment on me and they can see it right away. And so we began going into my protocol, which is meet with um, my mentors and my counselor on the day one. <clears throat> day two is reviewing the incident and everything we could have have done, would have done different. And then the third day, I start writing sermons or speeches um, and then get ready to deliver them somewhere, somehow. So I have a three-day protocol when when things um, are that tough. But we expect all of our counselors to be in uh, good uh, mental health. And if somebody sees something in somebody, it doesn't matter if you're the uh, the first year psychologist uh, and you're talking to myself, the president, you have the right to say, I'm observing something. And I have to act off that. I don't get to opt out. Yeah. And so you mentioned um, counseling the, the victims of these uh accidents, not just the first responders as well. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that you expected that you would be doing when you went into this? It's a good question. Um, two of the biggest things that we we attend to are death notifications. When somebody dies in your family and someone's got to knock on your door and tell them somebody died in an accident or natural causes in a different place. The second one is called a death investigation. And a death investigation is where something happens in somebody's home. Uh, it could be a natural death, a murder, homicide, or whatever kind of death it is, we have to manage that piece of it. And so if if we're going to play in that arena, we're going to have to know how to help others and how to help ourselves. You sign up for your number one priority as first responders, but inherently the community always comes into the picture because we're serving them. Because it sounds like a pretty tough job, at least emotionally tough. I'm wondering why uh, why is this work, you know, so important to you? And what do you what keeps you going every day? You know, I, I think that's a spiritual answer. Um, I don't know a whole lot of people that raise their hand for this kind of mission, but I do know that when we're done, people are astonished that they were cared for in this way. There was a, a gentleman that died in Denver, and I told the mother and father on a Sunday morning, and they said, 
I have no idea what to do at this point. We've never had to do this. And so I made a few phone calls and I called one of our chaplains in Denver, Colorado and said, hey, there's a couple coming with a family, be at the airport, help them uh, in any way possible and send me whatever debt I need to pay. Well, they picked up the family. They took them to the son's, the deceased son's apartment, helped pack up the apartment and sent everything uh, on its way back home. They went to the crematorium and uh, did a service before the cremation. And then I told them to take him to this little restaurant in Idaho Springs where they made their own root beer. The family had such a fine time there. They opened up an envelope that I gave them. And I said, go up to about 30 minutes farther up the mountain and you're going to see this amazing outlook. It's like the continental divide. The sun's going to set and it's just going to be you and God having a conversation. And they did. And they wept and they laughed. The next day, the pastor took him back home and we picked him up at the airport. We got him home. And the mother looked at me right in the eyes. and She said, who are you people? Who does this? We have felt so loved from the very moment that we met you. That's how this part of life should go. There should be a helper, a messenger, somebody to cover the provision. And, and that's the spiritual answer for that is, this is my mission. Every day I get to wake up in service like this. And it doesn't matter how old, how young, where people are at in life. Um, my design is to meet them where they're at and, and help them into a better space. So uh, possibly related to that, uh, I saw on your website, I think it was the 1041 website, that you're referred to as Tim Perry, the vision caster. What does that mean? These two companies that we've created don't exist under um, on one offering. You can find psychologists over there. You can find chaplains over here and you can find training and ad nauseum out there in the world. But under one roof where these exist, it's, it's really hard to find this. Um, we, having spent 25 years in corporate America, I, I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to have 15 meetings to make one decision on a pencil. Uh, I wanted to get uh, create programs that matter uh, quicker to hire the right talent and give them freedom. Um, so we're, we're doing business much differently than anybody I've known, but I, I think it's, it's a good way. It's a responsible way. Uh, I know people have looked at our um, organizations and have interviewed us on radio and television and uh, asked us, you know, how, how can you even begin to run these corporations like this? It's, it's not a matter of um, how dare I. It's really a question of why haven't we as a whole run organizations like this? So I, I think it's a gift, my friend, just to, uh, to do these two companies. Um, plus, we just added a church for first responders and um, the vision's still going. I try to stay out of God's way and uh, try to make him laugh every now and then. But uh, for the most part, he leads the vision and I uh, make sure that it gets done. That's really great. Well, I think uh, we're about ready to move on to the lightning round. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so first, we'll uh, do a quick uh, uh, promotion for our uh, professional uh, education department. Wonderful. Um, 
So uh, Embry-Riddle has professional education and continuing education programs. Uh, we're recognized as one of the global leaders in aerospace and aviation education training. We combine the expertise and technology to address the most pressing challenges facing aviation today. We have open enrollment short courses available year-round. We can also create customized education and training to meet the needs of your organization. We offer in-person and online courses on accident investigation, business and finance, cybersecurity, aviation law, risk assessment, and more. For details on these courses and a full list of offerings, visit proed.erau.edu. That's P-R-O-E-D.erau.edu. Now, Tim, it's uh, time for the lightning round. Have you had a breather? Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Okay. I'm going to give you five questions and you're going to give me five answers. And it doesn't have to necessarily be quick. The first one is um, you can fly any plane ever made from any location to any destination. What do you choose? I want the aircraft I soloed in, the old Sparrowhawk 182. It was the best. I had to sit on a phone book because I couldn't see over the college. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that any day. Now, were you a, were you a, uh, are you a small person or are you uh, just about, very young? I'm about 5'7", but uh, yeah. when I was learning how to fly in Prescott, uh, I had a good flight instructor and and he said, hey, can, I, I see you're not really seeing the runway. And I said, I can't see over the cowling. <laughs> so we landed, we got a phone book, <laughs> we went back up and I was nailing it. I was greasing all the landings. That's hilarious. Do you still fly? No, I fly with friends uh, as a passenger, but it just got uh, a little too expensive out there. All right. If, uh, if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think it's the finest book I've ever come across, and it's the one I'm reading now. And in many, as many years as I've studied in seminary and as many years as I've, as I've studied on this earth and provided counsel, it always still gives me another avenue to learn, another way to look at something. This book stays the same, but I change through the years. And that book's the Bible. Right on. So uh, who's your favorite cartoon character? What was the name of that um, Roadrunner? That's what it was, Roadrunner. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it just because the backdrop reminded me of New Mexico. Right? And we, we love that country. That's where our tribe, our Pueblo tribe is from. So it always mm-hmm. reminded us of our cousins. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, uh, so picture your ideal grilled cheese sandwich. You got this in front of you. You got it in your hands. You're about to take a bite. What are you about to sink your teeth into? What's in it? What's it? What's the bread you're using? Give me everything. Oh, Asiago bread with uh, too many layers of mayonnaise and a couple eggs on there. Little roast beef and the slathering of cheese all over it. And once a day is probably not good enough. So, you know, take two of those and call me in the morning is my motto. That's fantastic. That's really specific. You've worked this out. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have. <laughs> All right. Last one. Um, if you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? You know, I often ask myself, what do I look like in somebody else's eyes that I love and cherish. And um, my wife is such an amazing heart, um, great patience, and she just loves and supports what we're doing. I would love to live just a day in life in her eyes, uh, just to see things. She she sees the greatness in people, uh, even when they're struggling and falling down, and even when evil exists. Uh, she looks at a flower and 
and get so excited and I look at the same flower and go, what is going on here? <laughs> but in the end, um, I love her joy, her pure joy for this life. And um, it motivates me every day. So my wife, Laura, would be the one I'd love to see through. That's really sweet. That's, I think that's the first time I've heard that one. Mm. Well, that's uh, thanks very much, Tim, for joining us with the Talent Talks podcast. That's it. Well, let me let me just say that what you guys yeah. are doing is extremely valuable, and uh, I I am in such support of this that uh, we want to do whatever we can for you. But for all of our alumni, um, there is there is help nearby. Um, for all those that um, have graduated and are, are wondering how best to support this amazing university, um, just go to the websites, pick up the phone and call us. Uh, there's so many good ways to do this. And um, this is such a special university. Even back in 1986, uh, upon graduation, I realized that this was an amazing journey. And uh, I just love being an Eagle. So thank you again for doing all of this. We're glad to have you, Tim. Now, Talent Talks is a production of Wicked Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida, and Tim's home in Elgin, Illinois. This episode was recorded by me and edited by Cindy Puckett. Edmund Odarte is our program manager. Bill Thompson is Executive Director of Alumni Engagement, and Tony Brown is Executive Director of Communications. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our show or suggest a guest to us, we'd love to hear from you. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. I promise your message comes directly to me. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.